Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Annoyingly never gets old. So, uh, sorry, I was just like, da, 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 you know, um, it's one of those songs you wanted to keep going, but deep down inside, you just don't. Um, and the stay dead part catches me off guard every time. I'm like, oh, yeah, stay dead. Okay, I forgot about that part. That's good. I guess that's true. Um, so my name is Chris Causey. I'm so glad you're here today. Um, as you've already been introduced by quite the little jingle, uh, we're in the midst of a series called Stay Positive. And uh, the whole goal of this series is really meant to, as we go into a holiday season, which is sometimes marked with um, just as much negativity as it is positivity, as we go through the course of our lives, what does it look like to be people who stay positive, who have a positivity that's not rocked? Uh, by just the kind of the things of life. And uh, last week, we kind of unpacked that foundational piece about uh, where the source of that positivity and where the confidence of that positivity comes from. And today, I want to kind of shift gears and be really practical and just unpack uh, 12 simple words with you. Uh, It begins, the journey begins towards our positivity journey today with a New York Post article from September 2015. Uh, the headline was $8 key that opens New York City to terrorists. Um, I like reading. I like reading articles and books. And so this is a headline that grabs your attention. Um, one of the statements that was made in line with this was that billions of dollars of anti-terrorism tactics have been thwarted by an $8 key. And that just sounds sort of dramatic. And then you start to read into this article, and what you realize is that maybe it's not as dramatic as it sounds. You see, the key that was being referred to was a a Yale uh, key. Yale's a brand, and specifically, it's a Y1, which is a type of Yale key. And that Y1 Yale key had a number stamped on it that said 1620. And for those uh, firefighters in New York City, they instantly recognized what the 1620 key was. You see, the 1620 key was the firefighter's master key for elevators throughout the entire city of New York. If you had that key, you could take control of any elevator in New York City. Not only could you take control of any elevator, that key would also open subway gates. It would open up lock boxes at construction sites. This key, one simple key, could unlock a city of millions of people. And while that sounds dramatic and while that sounds somewhat terrifying, if you're a New York City resident, to think that on eBay someone could purchase one of these keys, it got me to think um, kind of along the lines, what if there is a type of key like that for positivity? What if there was one simple key that we all could grab hold of that could unlock us and move us into positivity? And the realization was there is one. There is one powerful key that you and I can grab hold of this morning and it truly be the key to positivity in our lives, to the crazy circumstances and to the outlandish characters in our lives. It gives us the key to unlock positivity in every one of those situations. That key is actually found, not a literal, but a spiritual key is found in the teachings of Jesus. It's arguably one of his most um, famous or well-known lines 
that he ever uttered. It's embedded inside of what's been historically considered his most famous sermon ever. And yet these 12 words that we are going to read this morning from Jesus's mouth shows us and gives us the key to positivity. Um, Jason referenced um, the Encounter Church app, and uh, we've created that just for you. And if you've already downloaded it or if you're in the process of downloading, click on message notes, and you'll find that the passage for today has already been preloaded for you. Um, it's coming from what's known as the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew seven twelve specifically is the verse and the chapter that it's in. And Matthew is named after the writer Matthew. Matthew was um, a follower of Jesus. He was a man whose life had been completely turned upside down. Uh, Matthew is one of the four biographies on the life of Jesus. When you look at the New Testament, you'll notice it opens with four distinct biographies. They were written to different audiences, so each one has a little bit of a different um, flavor to it. Matthew's uh, distinct element, as you read through it, is it was written and intended for a Jewish audience. Matthew was Jewish, and he was writing about this deeply profound Jewish idea called the Messiah, or the chosen one, or the promised one of God. And so Matthew writes this book to answer the questions, and to deal with the objections, and to show objectively that Jesus was that promised one that they had been waiting on. And so because of that, throughout his book, you'll notice a lot of distinctly Jewish elements. There's a lot of throwbacks to, to Jewish culture because this is what these people are steeped in, which is why you read this sentence with this last piece. It says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. That law and the prophets is that element that I was referring to. It's a distinctly Jewish way of referring to the Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures are a part of what's known as the Christian Bible today. It's the first portion. The second volume is the New Testament. So the Hebrew scriptures make up volume one. Um, it's sometimes called the Old Testament. And the New Testament is that second volume. And so when he says the law and the prophets, that's one of the ways in their day that they referred to the Hebrew scriptures or what Christians would now call the Old Testament. It has 39 books in the Hebrew Bible. There are thousands upon thousands of verses. There are over 600 different distinct commands in the Hebrew Bible alone. And so Jesus makes a very bold assertion. He says, do this, and it sums up everything. For this sums up all of the Hebrew scriptures. He reduces 39 books into 12 words. It's a really profound statement. And because... Many of us, even if you didn't grow up in church or you're just, you've been checked out of church for a while, um, no doubt this is probably a statement you've heard before. It's been called the golden rule, and the reason is because, according to legend, Emperor Alexander Severus actually had this rule written in gold on his wall so that he could look at it regularly. That's where the, the idea of the golden rule came from. But the challenge with the golden rule is that even if you've been exposed to it, you can miss how truly profound it was. That I've had dialogue with people from philosophical and different religious backgrounds, and one of the things that periodically will come up is, well, Jesus didn't do anything that was ex distinctly original. And I say, okay, well, let's take a, you know, put the resurrection aside, because I believe that, but you may not, so let's not dialogue about that one. Let's find something that you would say is not distinctly different. Um, and so the golden rule is one of those things that get that gets thrown up and says, well, Jesus didn't invent anything there. 
But in actuality, if you dig into it, what you realize is that this sentence had never been uttered in human history. The idea at the time, and especially in Eastern religions and even present today, was what you would call the silver rule. The silver rule was don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. I heard that growing up. Sometimes teachers would say, don't do that, or they would say, don't do to them what you don't want them to do to you. And that's the silver, silver rule. And the idea is like the silver rule was present. It was present in Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism. It was present in a lot of different world religions. But the challenge with the silver rule is it is not the same thing as the golden rule. You see, the silver rule, all you have to do to obey it is passivity. Just don't do anything. And you fulfill the silver rule. Because it says don't do. But all of us recognize that's not the way to build great relationships. I've never sat down across from the couch of two happily married people or two adults, a father and a son, who said, oh, the secret to our relational strength is all the stuff they didn't do for me. Like, that doesn't seem to work as a relational guideline. What's your secret to a relationship? Uh, don't do stuff. Oh, great. I'll build my relationship on that. Right? And so the silver rule wasn't exactly the best or the greatest idea in humanity. All you had to do to fulfill it was be passive, not smack somebody upside the head when you wanted to. And then Jesus comes along, and he completely inverts it. He says, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's a completely different ballgame. And this is one of the reasons I love Jesus, his wisdom, his profundity, and the fact that 12 words could be used to sum up 39 books in a statement that had never been uttered before, even by all the other well-known religious leaders in history. And Jesus writes, states this, and we still have it today, over 2000, almost 2,000 years ago. And what I want to do is dig into, over the next 20 minutes, some of the implications out of this, because this key, this golden key, is the key to positivity. And it it can be missed because it's such a simple statement that unless we spend time to walk through it slowly, we can miss truly how profound its implications are. To start off, he begins with, so in everything. I love it. And everything due to others. Not in some things, not in convenient things, not in things where you, or for those who you really like, it's in everything. Jesus starts this statement with an all-encompassing, wide net. And you have to realize that he is saying this to a group of people who would have had a lot of exceptions to the rules. Besides the Hebrew scriptures, there was a whole other set of teachings in Jewish culture at the time that was all predicated. It was all built out of, it was all commentary on the religious teachings found in the Hebrew scripture. They had spent and, and kind of written an entirely different book to draw out all the implications and exceptions to what had been said in the Hebrew Scriptures. So these were people who were used to making exceptions, especially because at the time that Jesus is saying this, the Jewish people are being systemically oppressed by the Roman Empire. They're not free people. They're not like you and I. They didn't get to vote for their leader. Their leader was put in charge and manipulated and abused his power, and he was put in charge by someone in Rome. They, it was completely legal for a Roman soldier 
to walk up to a Jewish man or a woman and demand that they carry their stuff for them. It was completely legal for a Roman soldier to walk into your house, completely not even caring what you thought or what you were doing at the time. These were people who were racially, economically, and through their justice system, oppressed by this Roman Empire. And yet Jesus doesn't say, well, and everything except for what it deals with the Romans, those people you can treat differently. He says, so in everything. And this is actually really profound. What Jesus is doing with this statement is he is telling a group of people who have felt powerless that they still are in control. One of the most tragic things that happened to a human is for them to believe that they no longer have control over their life. When you surrender, when you become a permanent victim to what life has done to you, you wave a white flag, and for the rest of your life, you sit in the passenger seat. And Jesus comes to these people who are stuck in that place, and he says, no, 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 get back in the driver's seat. You're in control. You and everything do to others. He's reminding them. He's calling them to step in to that place, to regain power and that locus of control for where they are. Because he understands that oftentimes as humans, we tend to make some mistakes around control. I don't know if you've had this problem, but we try to control that which we cannot control. And in the process, we lose control of what we can control. So i.e. parenting. Have you ever tried to parent a little human who did not want to do what you wanted them to do? This little being that you cannot control, you exert energy, you exert time, you exert loud voice, quiet voice, screaming voice. You exert the one, two, three very slowly because you know that they're going to wait to three just to mess with you. And in that power move, you slow down as if somehow you're in control, but the secret is that they're in control because if you were in control, you wouldn't have counted the three. Right? Because we oftentimes try to control the uncontrollable. For all our controlling, for all our commanding, at the end of the day, our autonomy ends where their little bodies begin. They're in control. And so what happens is in trying to control the uncontrollable, we lose control. We lose control of how to count. We lose control of our voices. And this is what Jesus is trying to snap us back into that driver's seat. He's like, look, control you. Stop reacting. Where the silver rule was about passivity, the golden rule is about positivity. Step in control. You are the one in control of your life. That autonomy is one of the implications, and it's a powerful one. The second component actually comes out in a, I think it's beautifully illustrated in a research project that was done at Stanford who's uh, by Emily um, Pronin. She's now at Princeton, but she did this brilliant um, experiment where in a paper with six different experiments, this one used um, word blanks. And so, for example, uh, you would, they brought in dozens of students and they were asked to look at words. And so you might have a word like B, space, space, letter K. And they, you were asked, there was about 20 of them, um, fill in the blanks. 
So go ahead and do it. If you got B space space K, um, fill in the blank. Think of a word that could fit in there. Beak, book. Great. Okay. You pass, right? This was part of the way the experiment worked. Multiple words could be filled in for every single one of these entries because they wanted a diversity of words because what would happen after they did this experiment was they were then sat down and they were asked this simple question. The words that you chose, what do they say about you? Here's some of the responses. Uh, not a whole lot. They reveal vocabulary. Another one says, oh, those words, they're just random. And that was the overall sentiment of people who were asked about the words that they selected. And then the brilliance of this experiment, they were handed another set of words from what other people had written. And they were asked this question. What do these words say about them? And let me read some of the statements. I have a feeling whoever did this is pretty vain. It seems to me that this person doesn't read much. They wrote beak instead of book. It actually might indicate that they have a deliberate unfocused of mind. They're lazy. Another person says, well, I have a feeling that this individual in question may be very tired in life. Another person even went on to say and predicted a certain period of time in a woman's life based on the words that he read. And so while one hand, the words that they had written said nothing about them, the other set of words, they deduced people's intelligence, they deduced people's monthly rhythm, they deduced people's personal life values and character traits. It's really interesting because what this illustration, what this experiment illustrated was one of the tendencies that we fall into that is a trap of negativity. We feel in the gaps, right? We feel them in. I feel like you don't care. I feel like you don't know what you're talking about. I feel you think I am selfish. We, we feel in the gaps. Whereas I believe that the golden rule would call us to assume the best and avoid feeling in the rest. A lot of dangerous things happen when we feel in the rest. If anything, the golden rule would call you and I to intentionally fill in the rest by asking questions, not by reacting with assumptions and that we fall into this trap when we with just a few letters grab hold of words that we're convinced they're thinking about us i feel like you don't like me i know this is what you were thinking we say stuff like that now i don't know about you but i am not a mind reader never done that very well but oftentimes, if I'm not careful, I will say mind reader type things. Like, I know that's what you're thinking. Or I knew they, they just think I'm an idiot. Or I knew that they, all they really cared about was. And we impute negativity. We impute negative motives. And we feel in the gaps right in front of us. And instead of. Instead of feeling in the rest, the golden rule calls us to assume the best until you have enough information 
to do otherwise. I'm not saying that there aren't jerks in life. There are. I'm not saying that the golden rule is a license for naivety. It's not. But it is a license to get more information before you write someone off. I mean, just this past week, I was in the, um, in the car with someone, and I had, was traveling from one location to an airport, and it was about an hour's drive, and I was getting a little nervous about this person. The more they talked, the more they made me think I should probably alert someone and let someone track me with the feature in, like, Uber. You know, it's like, I don't know if I trust this guy. Um, and instead of just writing this individual off, I began to ask certain questions. He had said a lot of different things that I was like, this guy's either the most extraordinary person on planet Earth or he is a pathological liar. But I didn't jump the pathological liar. I wanted to assume the best. And so I began to dialogue with him about the things that I knew I had an area of knowledge about that he claimed to be an expert in. So I was like, okay, well, I'll test it. Because if he's really who he says he is, then he'll be able to answer these simple questions. And the more I question him, the more I realize this guy has no clue, and I might die today. <laughs> Honestly. Fortunately, there were three other people in the car with me, and so I said we were going to all go out together. Um, and we eventually made it after multiple wrong turns um, from a person who told me, I go to this airport all the time. I know, I know everything about this airport, and who made me get out at the wrong stop of the airport. He was like, no, you can get off here. And I was like... The map says you're supposed to take me two stops down the road, but, you know, I'm just happy to get out your car alive. So I stepped out of the car. And so I'm not saying that the golden rule means we overlook and we don't have boundaries. But it means that our, our posture, our posture is to assume the best and avoid feeling in the rest. And when we do that, ultimately, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook with just that. Because that, honestly, just assuming the best probably would transform a lot of our relationships. It'd probably prevent us from overreacting and saying things that we regret. But what Jesus does is he doesn't stop there. He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. He, he calls them to action. He doesn't just correct their assumptions. And the call to action points them to do, do what? Do good. In where? In how? In everything. All of a sudden, our actions to do good, our standard is not what they have done to us or even what they deserve. Notice that he doesn't even say we have permission to do to others for what they deserve. Did you hear what they said to me? Did you hear how they made that statement? Did you see what they did or didn't do? Jesus says, no, so in everything, do to others. And what's the same? What you would have them do to you. So if you were being misunderstood in a moment, what would you want someone to do? Lash out at you or ask questions to understand you? What would you want someone to do on the other side of a disagreement with you? What would you want someone to do on the other side of a moment where you'd made a statement that you didn't mean, but that you said it anyway and it hurt? What would you want them to do to you? He says, that's our standard. That's our key for what you're going to do. And this completely elevates us. That means in any situation, in any circumstance where there's negativity, we automatically are put in a position 
because of the golden rule, to respond with positivity. Not even passivity, positivity. That if they lash out, that's okay. We can still respond with good. That the Eastern religions then and even today simply say it's enough to hold your neg negative behavior in check. And yet what Jesus says is act for their good regardless of their negativity. And that when we intentionally act for their good regardless of what and who and how they've acted towards us, we actually elevate the whole situation and circumstance and we move it from a place of negativity to a place of positivity. The worst thing that happens is they get upset, but you're not responsible for them, but you are responsible to this command and how you deal with them. And this is what Jesus is doing in elevating this. And the reason that he can be so confident, the reason that he can call us to this is ultimately is happening what's going on around this statement. You see, Jesus in the midst of the great this kind of greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's the most studied speech in human history. No other portion of writing, no other speech has ever been studied more extensively than Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because the setting in which he speaks it is a mountainside. And so that's what has stuck historically. But the Sermon on the Mount has been studied by thousands upon thousands of people. It is overwhelming how much has been written about what Jesus says here. And what Jesus says in the grander context of both who he is and directly before this gives us a deeper understanding of why he calls us to this in the first place. You see, uh, for those who are going through the 112, who've gone through the 112, one of the things that I teach you how to do in the 112 is I teach you how to read the Bible so that you can experience in your own life without me present what you're experiencing when I teach the Bible to you. That I teach you the same process that I walk through as I study and prepare this message every single week. Because the Bible, unfortunately, has been used to abuse and it has been used to justify things that it does not justify. And I want to lead in a church where people are comfortable and competent in reading and interacting with the scriptures. Even if you don't believe them, I want you to be able to engage with them at a level where that book is no longer a mystery to you, but that open that it opens up the mystery of God's love to you. And that's a passion point of mine. And one of the things that I teach in the 112 is words and how context is king, language is queen. The words matter. And so the words so, to kind of go back to, a, you know, like a schoolhouse rock video, those words matter. So is a connecting word. It points back to something. And so when Jesus says so in everything, right before this, he's been referring, he's been talking about the character of God and the goodness of God. That's what verse 11 is referring to. So he's just talked about the character of God and who God is. And then he transitions. So out of who he is, this is how we respond. He is the one that's our model. He is the one that we take our cue from. He is the example that we follow. That's why Ultimately, the silver rule was always going to be the silver rule because it was rooted in our humanity. The golden rule was rooted in his divinity and his character and how he acted and responded. Matthew had personally experienced this from Jesus himself. See, Matthew is what's known as a tax collector. 
in his day and age, he was the man who was most hated by his Jewish brothers and sisters. You see, the Roman government, one of the one of the devious ways that they controlled the people was through the use of hiring uh, tax collectors who were Jewish. So it wasn't a Roman official who showed up and knocked on your door and demanded money from you. The Roman government still wanted your taxes, but what they would do is they would hire someone from the village that you lived in. It's really hard to attack someone that you're akin to or that you grew up with. So it's not a Roman soldier. It's your neighbor. It's your cousin. They show up and they knock on the door or they sit at the desk and demand taxes. But the Roman government, brilliantly, knowing their system would be used to kind of really hook people in, tax collectors were given a lot of power, which meant oftentimes the way the tax collectors, the only way a tax collector would make their salary is they would have to, anything they made above the tax rate for the Roman government became profit. So if the tax rate of the Roman government that year was 10%, they had to collect 11% to make any profit, which meant that number shrouded in mystery allowed me as a tax collector to show up and say, hey, taxes went up this year. It's now 25%. Then I would send the 10% on to the Roman government and I would pocket the 15%. And Matthew is one of those guys. And as you can imagine, culturally, tax collectors were hated. In fact, one of the common kind of comments thrown at Jesus as as a slanderous statement was, um, Jesus, obviously, you don't have a clue because you eat with tax collectors. Tax, Tax collectors were deeply shameful people in their culture. And so one day, Matthew is sitting at his tax collector booth. And religious leaders didn't talk tax collectors. They hated them. They, they would create rules and exemptions so they didn't have to give them goodness because they were wicked people. See, it's always a dangerous thing when a group of people decide collectively with no basis that a group of people is wicked. It just starts to justify all kinds of things. One of the things that quite terrifies me about our nation right now is I saw in a recent poll that a minor group, a significant minority of both political parties in our nation don't just disagree with the other side. They think the other side is evil. That puts you in a really dangerous place when you start to not just disagree with someone, but you start to demonize them and vilify them. And Matthew had lived on that side. And the people who vilified him, demonized him, were religious leaders. And then one day, sitting at the booth, lo and behold, the most famous rabbi and religious teacher of his day walks up to the tax collector's booth, and his name is Jesus. Rumors have spread of how he's healed people. People are talking about the amazing teachings that he has. See, Matthew's tax collecting booth was right in the very city where Jesus has that moment where he reveals and kicks off his ministry. So Matthew would have been intimately aware of all the things that Jesus was up to. Matthew would have also known that Jesus didn't know any taxes. And so when Jesus walked up, Matthew was probably like, oh, he must owe more taxes than I realized. And then what what does Jesus say? He says, Matthew, follow me. Which for our day and age can be a little tricky. We don't understand. Follow me? What is that? But for a Jewish boy growing up, one of the most amazing things that could ever happen to you was to have a rabbi walk up to you and utter the words, follow me. 
Because in a Jewish culture, becoming, having a rabbi inviting you, having a religious teacher, teacher invite you to follow me was the equivalent of getting a, a request from Harvard to join their master's program or to be invited into some prestigious fellowship or if you were a doctor, to be brought into a residency at one of the best teaching hospitals. So for a rabbi to walk up and say, follow me, meant that you were a cut above everyone in your peer class. You were different. And the rabbi believed you had what it took to become a rabbi one day. And the reason he said, follow me, is because that was the method of teaching. That was the university in the day. Follow me literally meant, come follow me. Stay right on my heels. Listen to what I say. Do what I do. Copy the things that you see me doing. Because that style is a fancy academic word. It would be peripodactic. It was a teaching alongside of. And so Jesus comes up to this person who had been despised. And he says, follow me, Matthew. And Matthew leaves his tax collector booth. And he follows Jesus. And his life is forever changed. 2,000 years later, a man who was hated for what he wrote down in journals has now published a piece of one of the best-selling books in human history. That man had experienced the golden rule. Jesus had walked up, and in love, he had given him a picture for who he could have become. See, I believe when we assume the best about people and we don't feel in the rest, we give people permission to rise and become that best. When we treat people with the action of good, it does something deep inside of them that starts to transform them too. But ultimately, Jesus' authority, the reason we still read this today, is not just because it was one of the most profound religious teachings. It's not just because it's the golden rule and no other religious teacher has ever come close to mimicking it. It's because ultimately this book has authority, not because a group of people says the Bible says so, but because Jesus came back from the dead. So we think his words have some significance. Jesus had modeled through his love, through his sacrifice, through his action, that there is hope regardless. And that his example and model paves the way for us to do it too. And that there is a power when we open our eyes and we see what he did to change how we live. And that his, his key to positivity, delivered in 12 simple words, is to remember that you're in control, that you have an autonomy. To remember that we're called to assume the best, not feel in the rest. And that ultimately, any good and any expression of love has to be done, not just thought that we are a people who are meant to be called to action. And that if you and I, this week, commit to practicing this key to positivity, then you will start to notice, some quickly and some very slowly, you'll start to see relationships and circumstances change around you. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.